certainly I'm not going to get through all of them, but I did group some of the similar questions together. It's interesting to just read your minds after. <laughs> Very revealing. <laughs> So this was about the big mind meditation. Why deal with pain? Why investigate clinging, attitudes, mind states, etc., if it is so easy? Just hang around in the open nature of mind, let the clouds pass by, and wait for enlightenment. (laughs) Well, that's a good question. If it's so easy, why not let it be easy? So just as a furtherance of that teaching, I thought I would read just a little bit from a Tibetan teaching just about this. And it's called Free and Easy. And it's by Lama Gendrin Rinpoche. These are just a few of the stanzas. He says, Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do nor undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all, has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with it and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who was already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Amaho, marvelous, everything happens by itself. So what's the problem? (laughs) It would be an interesting question to ask yourselves. You know, if it's that easy, it's just the settling back, not being identified with what's arising, not clinging, not grasping, letting all conditions arise and pass like this magic show. It is very simple. The problem seems to be that as simple and easy as it is, we have other habits of mind that are very strong. And so all of the methods, all of the suggestions, all of the investigation, all of the learning we're doing about the nature of our experience is really to come to this place of ease. And we do it in part, in part by recognizing the possibility and then in a moment just settling back into the ease, and at other times, and sometimes quite frequently, we really investigate what is it that keeps us from it. You know, we really begin to look at the patterns in the mind. What's the, what's the condition? What's the causes behind the grasping? How is that working? How is aversion arising in the mind? Where do we get caught? Where do we get stuck? What are the attitudes? All the methods that we've been talking about are precisely to unhook. It's not to get something. It's to unhook from the clinging, to unhook from the grasping patterns. Um, And so I think it's just helpful to hold the balance of recognizing the possibility of this natural ease of mind That's always there. We can always come back to it. 
and at the same time learning and practicing and developing a whole array of skillful means, of tools, to help, help us unhook when we do get caught, you know, to recognize the patterns that catch us again and again. Very helpful to remember, you know, and the, the title of that little teaching is called Free and Easy. Sometimes it's helpful to remember it in moments as you go through the day when you feel yourself caught up in a lot of striving. You know, if you can remember this possibility, and it could be expressed in different ways. You could express it just in the little mantra, it's already here, or already aware, or already awake. You know, it's just it's a momentary reminder that we're not looking for something in the next moment. And we're actually just wanting to settle back into the awareness that's already here. And that reminder, even just for a moment, in the midst of a lot of striving, you can really feel the release in the heart. You know? And so then it's just practicing that again and again. I've been having a lot of re- repeated material come up around past relationships. It is like the whole history of dating, boyfriends, intimate relationships is coming up. Like I am individually experiencing each relationship, seeing it clearly and the role I played in it. Like a coming to terms with this history, with this process. With this process, I am feeling less of an identity, an attachment to these partners. But then I keep on wanting to process the material in a therapeutic way instead of watching, ha- watching the material in a Vipassana context. I'm wondering how one holds this kind of process in a Vipassana context and not get caught in a therapeutic cycle, but then honoring the material and the therapeutic quality that arises with it. Well, I think this, in one way or another, is a fairly common experience, especially on long retreats. Just as our mind gets quiet, a lot of our past history, in one way or another, whether it's about relationships or anything else, really does start to arise in the mind, uh, and often in a very vivid way. We're really, out of the power of the concentration and mindfulness, we're seeing things and understanding things about what has happened in our lives, My experience has been in that regard that it's particularly therapeutic because when this material comes up in meditation, uh, I'm much less defensive. You know, in in the actual situation, I might have been acting out of some position. But in the context of the meditation, as things come up, it seems... uh, and again, this at least has been my experience, that because the mind is more still, more focused, more concentrated, more open, it's able to see things from various angles, from various sides. And so we do come to different understandings. So this is part of, I think, a very helpful process. We're really learning about ourselves, kind of the emotional, psychological level you know, of our lives and our relationships uh, in quite a revealing way. The danger. The danger is that it's fascinating. I mean, it's really interesting. And it's easy to just get caught again and again in the story. Because, of course, we're the star of the story. So what could be more interesting than that? So the question is how to find the balance. You know, how to balance opening to the insights without getting caught in a big self story and without simply repeating 
the same stuff over and over again. What I've noticed uh, very often in my practice that as different thoughts or feelings come up, especially about things from the past, there'll be an initial uh, an initial quality of insight about it. You know, it may be a fresh angle, maybe seeing things that I hadn't seen before. But after a not very long time, I notice that the patterns, the thoughts about it begin to get quite repetitious. And I'm just recycling the same thing again and again. And it reminds me, I don't know whether you've had the experience of uh, chewing sugarcane. You know, when you chew chew sugarcane, the first few chews are quite juicy. You're extracting the juice and it's sweet. And then pretty quickly, it becomes dry pulp. Really dry pulp, you know, and really all you want to do and what one does do is spit it out. Notice when these thoughts become dry pulp, you know, when you have been through it, you know, for the hundredth time and you're not particularly seeing anything new or different or it's just repeating, then really bringing out the sort of wisdom can be helpful. Okay, enough. You know, and then seeing the thoughts or the emotions or even the insights that have come in the context of just another arising and passing away. I want to back up to the beginning of this response. If you can see the thought arising in the Vipassana context right from the beginning, that would be great. I don't think you, from the context, in the context of the meditation practice, you don't have to intentionally be exploring the psychological level. So if your practice is in a place where the mindfulness is very keen, and the concentration strong, and you're simply seeing it as an arising thought or image or emotion, and you're seeing it as arising and passing, don't stop the process. Oh, let me go into this. Let me explore it. I wouldn't suggest that. So what I had been suggesting was if the mind, if you find the mind engaged in, you know, understanding that psychological level, there can be a value to it for some time, but don't overchew. You know, and, and you you need to be watchful for this because they're very seductive. You know, and one could spend a lot of time on that level. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the phrase repeats. Thus, one observes, and then. It goes through the four foundations of mindfulness. You know, one observes the body, feelings, mind, mind objects. Thus one observes internally, observes externally, observes both internally and externally. What does internally and externally point to? You know, so that, that is a common refrain in the Satipatthana Sutta. You know, to train the mind to observe the body internally and externally feelings internally and externally, and so forth. It's pretty interesting to explore the meaning of this. Obviously, internally, I think, is quite obvious where we're being mindful of our own experience. It's possible to be mindful of other people's bodies, of other people's feelings of mind and mind states. Just as a few, a couple of examples. Sometimes I've been on retreat and actually mindfully seeing somebody else be walking very mindfully. You know, and so I'm mindful externally, 
of somebody else's body. And that mindfulness, and especially when they're being mindful, it's like it catches. <laughs> you know, it's, and you can experience how one's own mind is staying very aware. Or we can be mindful of somebody else's emotions. You know, suppose somebody is feeling happy, manifesting that in some way, or feeling angry and manifesting that, either verbally or not. You know, we just sense it. A common situation would be, in one way or another, to be reactive to that other person's emotion. You know, we like it, we don't like it, we get upset by it, whatever. Mindful externally means we become aware in the other person, oh, anger has arisen, joy has arisen, happiness has arisen. And the mindfulness of that keeps us in a mindful state. I want to read one teaching from the Buddha, which is a very powerful teaching in this regard. And it has to do, you know, we talk a lot um, in the teachings, there's, there's much said about right speech, and we'll be talking more about this toward the end of the retreat. But there's also a whole teaching on right listening. And so this is really mindful externally. And so this is from uh, a sutta in the Middle End Sayings. Bhikkhus, there are five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or with harm, spoken with a mind of loving-kindness or with a mind of inner hate. Herein, Bhikkhus, you should train yourself thus. Our minds will remain unaffected, we shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving-kindness. It's not so easy to have our minds remain unaffected, uttering no unskillful words, abiding compassionate for their welfare. You know, when somebody's screaming at us, or very angry at us, Oh, be happy, be happy. (laughs) What's the mechanism that makes this possible? The mechanism is precisely mindfulness externally. We actually become mindful, just as we might watch the anger in our own mind, or the fear in our own mind, or whatever mind state is arising. We can be mindful, oh, anger has arisen in this other person's mind. Love has arisen. This is the speech that is happening. This speech is true. This speech is untrue. Just being mindful of it. And in that mindfulness, we're not caught up. You know, we haven't been hooked. And there's a greater possibility then of remaining in that place where our minds are unaffected. You know, we just see there's a clear discernment. It's not pretending or it's not denying, it's not avoiding, there is that clear discernment, this is the kind of speech that is happening. We're mindful of external, somebody else's action. And so that mindfulness is very powerful because it keeps us in balance. So this isn't to necessarily suggest that you spend your whole day watching others. <laughs> but it can happen. You know, sometimes it's just naturally we're seeing others in the course of a day. Watch to see whether you're being mindful of the four foundations externally or your mind has gone streaming out through the eye door onto the object creating all kinds of concepts and projections and papancha, which is you know, not an unusual occurrence. 
but see if you can remember in that situation, yes, I can practice mindfulness of the four foundations, and you might you might you know investigate pretty precisely oh mindfulness of the body externally, mindfulness of feelings externally, mindfulness of the mind externally, and really see what it is that's arising. And this could go very deep, because just as the practice of mindfulness internally begins to reveal the selfless nature of phenomena, you know, that it doesn't belong to anybody, it's just elements of mind and body coming into being, passing away. It would be quite amazing and quite a change in the, we re- the way we relate to other people to see that our experience of other people could also be an awareness of the four foundations arising. This was one of the great things, probably in studying with many teachers, but it was particularly uh, vivid with uh, Saida Upandita, practicing with him. Because one had the very strong feeling in going in for interviews that really all he saw were mental factors. You know, he just, as one, as one gave the report in interviews, it's like he was just picking up mental factors. What's, what was arising in the mind? You know, and if they were unwholesome, he wouldn't hesitate to point it out. You know, and if they were wholesome, he would be encouraging to cultivate them. But there was no sense of a response to an individual. Now, that was a good example, and it was quite an interesting relationship in that regard. The whole relationship was in the service of ending suffering. You know, it, wasn't on a, it wasn't on a personal level for the most part, especially in the interview context. Right? It was just seeing the factors that arose, which led to suffering, which led to freedom. So th- this practice of internal-external is, is actually very profound. Um, you know, we could maybe get enlightened watching the mental factors of other people. Maybe it would be easier. <laughs> okay. What are the telltale signs of a practice that is casual rather than relaxed? And then... When it arises as fantasy or dogmatic belief, it can be easier to notice and identify delusion. (laughs) No, but but in delusion can but delusion can be difficult to notice. Please speak to how one can know delusion is present. I put those together because in one way, the difference between being casual in one's practice and being relaxed in one's practice has to do with whether delusion is present or not. So I'd just like to do a little experiment now. If you just move your arm and feel the movement, just feel it. You know, with care, but not straining, not forcing. Relaxed. Are you feeling the movement? Is anybody not feeling the movement? I mean, it's easy. Relaxed, simple. But present. Right? That's relaxed. There's real presence. There's that feeling of being embodied. Right? We're really there for it. And it can be, we could be moving quickly, or we could be moving very slowly, and it could be just as relaxed in both cases. But we're there in quite a continuous way. Right? So the relaxed practice means that there's not a striving, there's not a gaining, there's not a looking for anything. It's, it's completely simple. We're feeling the movement, but there. Casual practice 
is when we're kind of there. You know, and it would be very helpful for you to notice as you move through the day, you know, you're kind of there. You, you were especially in the transition times, because this is where casual practice can come up a lot. You know, the bell rings at the end of the sitting, maybe you're going to the walking place or time around meals, you know, or after lunch. Is your attention, is your awareness like this with everything you're doing? Right? It's relaxed, it's not stressful, it's not straining. But there's a quality of precision, there's a quality of exactness, there's a quality of aliveness, as opposed to, you know, we're just going someplace. In the casual practice, when we're not really there, there's very often delusion present, because very often in that situation, you know, we... We may not be totally lost in our thoughts, but there is often a pretty steady stream of thoughts that are coming, coming up and carrying us away to some extent or another. I have mentioned this in the first part of the retreat. One time I was practicing with Saida Upandita in Nepal, and the conditions were really bad. I mean, they were, they were among the worst conditions I've ever practiced in. It was like four or five of us just in a bare room on a cement floor right next to the latrine. The food was pretty poor. And my mind was pretty grumpy. You know, and so it's just... So I was walking around kind of in a grump. I went in and I reported this to Sayadaw. And he just had one piece of advice for me. Said I, I went through this whole thing, and he said, "Be more mindful." And my first reaction was, "Thanks a lot." <laughs> you know, it felt like it almost felt like a cliche to me. You know, oh well, he doesn't know what else to say. Be more mindful. But then I went outside, and I, well. He's this great meditation master. Maybe I should follow his advice. (laughs) So I started walking more mindfully, just in the way I was describing just now, really feeling the movement. Not straining, not forcing, very relaxed, but really there. And it was amazing. In that mindfulness, in that fullness of being with experience, the whole grump disappeared. You know, because it's like there was no space for it, there was no time for it. And I hadn't realized how much of it was being fed just because I had been practicing casually. You know, I had been walking, kind of present, but really lost in that whole mood. So do you get a sense of the difference? In the casual practice, there's a lot of delusion going on. Delusion means we're not fully present, we don't know exactly what's happening. Delusion is ignorance. And ignorance is an interesting word in English. You know, ignoring. We're ignoring what's present in one way or another. So I'd really like to encourage you, especially in this, you know, these last weeks of the retreat, in one way they're like the dessert. You know, it's like you've put in all this time and effort and your practice. And there, even though it may not feel it, and it may not be the dessert you ordered, (laughs) the waiter might have gotten it mixed up a little bit. It's the dessert nevertheless. And there is a power to your practice that you might not even realize being in the midst of it. You know, so this, it's a very valuable time to really refine your understanding of the difference between casual and relaxed. Because this could really transform your understanding of the practice. You know, it's the whole day, really the whole day. It's just, it's as simple as this. 
know, so if ever you think you're forgetting, just stop for a moment and move your arm. <laughs> just so you remember how simple it is, you know, and how easy, you know, and how open it can be with that fullness of awareness, fullness of attention. It transforms the quality of the practice. Now, this is not insignificant, so that's why I really want to emphasize it. What is the Buddhist take on intuition? How would one work with intuition in a Vipassana context? And how would one tell a real intuitive moment versus simply emotion arising? Well, this is an interesting question because, and it may not be exactly what was meant by the question, but it's important because the whole unfolding path of insight is intuitive, meaning that our insights develop not by thinking about things, that our insights into the nature of our, our experience happens intuitively out of paying attention. That is, we're just being mindful, we're being aware, just in this very relaxed but not casual flow. And so there's just observation, 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 and then all of a sudden, intuitively, we may see things, we may experience things in a new way in a different way. You know, it might be a sudden experience of impermanence. We're just seeing the impermanence deeper or from another angle. Or it might be an experience of selflessness or a deeper understanding of the First Noble Truth. Right? But it doesn't come from sitting there thinking about it. It comes intuitively. In There's one Zen teaching they characterize or express this intuitive understanding. They call it a sudden, wordless understanding. And that's just what our practice is like. We're going along and we just drop into different levels of perception, different angles, different perspectives. And that, in the Buddhist context, is what's understood as intuitive insight. Okay, this was a whole bunch. When there is no self, what knows? If there is no self, what is reborn? If there is no self, who or what gets to be reborn? Or who or what gets to carry karma from one lifetime to another? As there appears to be no separate self when looking at awareness... What is the commonality to an incarnation? How can I have a past life that belongs to me? It is often referred to the concept of mind streams, and I am wondering about their nature. To which extent are the mind streams of different people considered to be separate, interdependent, or even inseparable? Does the mind stream of a hermit who is living all by himself or herself affect other mind streams? And if yes, how? (laughs) (laughs) So, these questions often come up. I think it's the most frequently asked preface. If there's no self, then fill in the blank. Because of all the Buddha's teachings, this is the one that's most counterintuitive. You know, it doesn't, for most people, it doesn't immediately resonate. It's like, what does it mean? Our whole life has been built and lived around the idea of a self. And it's so strongly conditioned, you know, in our society and culture, and especially in the West, where there's so much individual emphasis, emphasis on the individual. So it's even made stronger. To say there's no self 
does not mean that there isn't a coherent pattern to the unfolding. Selflessness means that there is no underlying, unchanging substrate or reference point that is me. So there's no little there's no little seed that's carried through. And and an example which you know might might help to uh, illustrate this if you plant a seed you know and there's water and sun and good soil so the seed germinates and sprouts and grows and plant and tree and the tree bears fruit and the fruit has new seeds is it that the seed somehow has been carried up into the tree and into the fruit and somehow magically multiplied no. It has been a process of transformation. This is the process of becoming. Seed, due to various conditions, becomes this, becomes this, becomes sapling, becomes tree, becomes fruit, becomes new seed. The first seed has not been carried over. But this process of transformation is lawful. It's not happening randomly. If you plant an apple seed, you get an apple tree that bears the fruit of apples. You don't get a mango. And so there's a lawfulness to the unfolding. But there's no one element that is carried through the process. Rather, it's a process of each moment conditioning the next, conditioning the next, conditioning the next. It's like if you imprint a piece of wax with a seal, right? and then you take the seal away, there's nothing in the seal which is carried over into the wax, but the imprint is there. So we could think of each moment is imprinting the next, imprinting the next, imprinting the next. So in this understanding, consciousness itself is arising and passing in each moment along with all of its different mental factors. All of the material elements are arising and passing in each moment. There is a continuity to it, and you could call that, especially the continuity of the moments of consciousness, the mind stream of an individual. So when we look at the whole stream, just as we could look at a tree and say, that's an apple tree, but it's understanding that there's no single element that has been permanent in this process. So what's reborn, it's not that there is a self which is reborn. It's not that there's some element which is carried over from this life to the next life, but according you know, to the, to the Abhidhamma, the, the Buddhist psychology, it's described simply in the same way that we can understand this changing process of becoming within this life, each moment of consciousness conditioning the next, So it describes how the moment of death consciousness, the quality of consciousness at the moment of death, conditions the arising of rebirth consciousness. Now the mechanism for this, you'll have to ask somebody else. (laughs) But this this is how it's described. And it just follows in the same way the process that's happening within this lifetime. So we can really look whether whether or not you believe in rebirth, you can see the same process happening moment to moment right here. And that's um, really part of the whole unfolding of insight through the practice of watching. It's It's like a dual process, moment after moment, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, this pairwise progression what we call self, what we call Joseph, is the pattern. 
right? There is a recognizable pattern, and that's there. We don't confuse, you know, an apple tree from a mango tree. There's a pattern to the process of becoming which we can recognize, and that is the individual mind stream. There's just no permanent element that's carried through. So if we want to use the word self, which we could very well use conventionally, it refers to the particular pattern of changes. Right? So it acknowledges the pattern. That's the conventional level of appearance. Yeah, there's the self, there's Joseph, there's each one of us. But on the more ultimate level, we see that that pattern is an appearance arising out of a flow of momentary changes. Was that in the ballpark of being clear? (laughs) I mean, it seems very clear to me, (laughs) but I'm not sure if it came out that way. Just to touch on the last part of the question, how can if the if the mind streams are individual, which they are, but how can one mind stream affect another? And they do. And just as a very simple example, you know, if you walk into a room and somebody is really angry, you know, just really angry energy, intense energy. Do we feel it? Of course we feel it. You know, we're affected by everything and everyone around us. This whole web of conditioning is a web of interdependence. And so, I mean, in that situation, it's very obvious and we've all had that experience. It's also on the other side, when you're with somebody who was really cooled out. And this was, I mean, with many of my teachers, but I think, I think particularly now of Deepama, who was just this incredible being of stillness and peace and love. And that's, that's what you felt. You, you just came into her presence. And the effect was beautiful. And she, she could be sitting still and one would feel that. And so there is a very powerful effect from how we are. Okay. Did the Buddha talk about a place before stream entry that us lay people can obtain? If so, how did he describe it? Can we call it brook entry? <laughs> <laughs> So, a couple of things about that. He did, actually. There is a brook entry. (laughs) But it's also not to put stream entry, you know, which is kind of the first uh, real opening in a a very deep way to the experience of selflessness. Stream entry is what uproots the notion, uh, I think Sharda talked about it the other night, of Sakaya Ditti, the personality belief, the belief in self, you know, where, in, where our insight has just matured to a place where we know with certainty, we've seen with certainty the selfless nature of this process. Uh, so that's, that's a transforming moment you know, when we really see it without doubt. But there is something in the text, it's not actually called brook entry, but it's called chula sotapana, which means little sotapana, <laughs> or stream enter. And that is the experience when the momentum of mindfulness builds up to a certain extent, and we're in the experience of what's called arising and passing away. You know, we're, we're in that Uh, experience of seeing and feeling the very rapid 
just a rising and passing of all phenomena. And there's a very strong momentum of mindfulness at that time in our practice where it's, it's really going by itself. You know, it does not, at that point, there's not uh, real effort that's required because we've built up the momentum. You know, and the mindfulness is just working by itself and it's just seeing moment after moment things arising, passing, arising, passing. And it's a very exhilarating time in practice. It's said that once we have come to that understanding, that actually stream entry is inevitable. You know, it's like, in a way, it's kind of crossed over a certain... It's just crossed over a certain threshold because in in the seeing of that rapid arising and passing away, you know, the the bonds of self, the... Uh, really have been loosened tremendously. And even though there's further insights to unfold, it's really a it's really a turning point for us. And this this really can develop in practice. You know, this it's one of the reasons that I emphasized in the beginning the difference between casual and relaxed. It doesn't happen with casual practice. Because in casual practice, it's like we build up out of steam and then fall away. And then, you know, we got a little momentum going and then fall back. With relaxed practice, you know, where we're really there in a relaxed way, because the relaxation is a key part of it. It's letting go of the striving, the forcing, the efforting. It's relaxing back. Very easy, but continuous you know, where we're really there throughout the day for what we're doing. That's what builds up the momentum of mindfulness. And it's out of that momentum that these insights happen. There's a question which I'll come to later on, but there's one aspect of it that this would be a good place Uh, One of the questions was, what was some of the best advice I got from my teachers, you know, early on that helped me in my practice? One of the ones, Munindra said very often, he said, in spiritual practice, time is not a factor. Time is not a factor. And for us striving types, you know, okay, I'm on this three-month retreat, i got to get it. You know, or there's two and a half weeks left, got to get it. It's not about time, it's not a factor. Can we just put time aside? You know, the Dharma is vast. We're on this vast journey of exploration and discovery. It's not a question of a three-month retreat, and it's not a question of ten three-month retreats. It's just our life. You know, and if we know how to practice, if we know the right way to practice and engage fully, not in a casual manner, the whole path will unfold. So this is the message for you strivers. It's just relax, settle back. Right? It's big. It's much bigger than our little striving can do anything with. It's really more surrender to the process, but we need to do our part. You know, and a lot of what we're learning in the retreat is what our part is. What is the difference between craving and wanting? Isn't this suffering because we are craving pleasure? If we want without expectations of either pleasure, pain, or neither, is that still craving? What is the difference between wanting and craving? A friend lives in a violent situation. When I send her metta, I use the phrase, may you be safe and free from danger. I accept what is, but wish things to be different, of more ease for her. Is this wish for her wanting, clinging, grasping? This is an important question because 
The words in English can be very confusing because of multiple meanings. We use the word desire or wanting in English in many different ways. You know, in Pali, and this is one of the, I'm not a Pali linguist, but know just enough to appreciate the precision of the language in terms of its understanding uh, of the mind. English wasn't developed for that purpose particularly, and so there can be a lot of confusion. Just a couple of examples. The word desire or wanting can be associated with craving, with clinging, with attachment, with greed. You know, and so just an image for your mind to know when the wanting or desire is of the greed type, the clinging type. Just think of Velcro mind. If your mind feels like Velcro, you know, if it's stuck on the object, most likely the greed mental factor is there. There's another meaning of desire or wanting. In Pali, the word for greed is lobha, right? So that's the unskillful state. Another meaning is referred to in the Pali with the Pali word chanda, which means, it's also translated as desire, but it's desire to act, desire to do. And this chanda is ethically neutral. Sometimes this desire to act is associated with greed or with aversion, delusion. Sometimes desire to act is associated with generosity, with metta, with wisdom, with compassion. Right? So in English we use the same word. I have a desire for enlightenment. I have a desire for awakening. I have a desire for my friend to be happy, to be easeful. That desire is not lopa, is not greed, is not craving. Right? It's, it's that movement, you know, it's that energy of wanting to do something, but associated with skillful states. So you just need to learn how to discern, even though we may use the same word in English, desire or wanting, You really need to discern when that's arising in your mind, when you're feeling a wanting, when you're feeling a desire to do something. Really look to see whether it's the desire of greed, that stickiness of the mind to the object. It's not that hard to tell the difference when there's the stickiness or whether there are wholesome states of mind present. You know, check it out. It'll be a very useful discernment to bring into your lives. Um, Because without it, and because of the confusion of language in English, these states, we could easily confuse these states in our minds, not discern the difference. So it's it's a be an important investigation. The word craving that is almost always associated with lopa, with greed. You know, if, if we feel a craving, or no, another word that's used uh, to describe it is a thirst. And thirst is a good word because, you know, that feeling of thirst, <laughs> you know, uh, there's often that craving quality in the mind. Uh, so that's the stickiness, uh, that's the greed mental factor. Okay, do you still call this meditation coming from the Mahasi tradition? It seems quite far from that at this point. Um, This refers to just different traditions of practice uh, in Burma, you know, and for many years uh, we were talking of it in terms of the Mahasi tradition, who Mahasi Sayadaw was 
he was Munindraji's teacher, he was Upandita's teacher, so he, he was a great master. He died quite a few years ago. He did quite a revolutionary thing in Burma. He was the one who, I think more than any other monk, uh, opened up intensive practice for lay people. You know, because traditionally and historically, it's monks and nuns, renunciates, <coughs> who did intensive practice, and then lay people supported their efforts, you know, with dana and generosity, and they followed the precepts. <coughs> Mahasi Sayadaw was one of the first who, on a very large scale, right, saw that lay people could have the same depth of experience as monastics if the situation was created for them to practice. And so there were hundreds of Mahasi centers uh, set up uh, in Burma and then around the world. The things that characterized the Mahasi method, uh, he emphasized for the most part watching the breath, the abdomen, the rising and falling, rather than here. Um, it was an emphasis. He, he thought that was more helpful, but it was not exclusive. You know, but he emphasized that. He very much emphasized the tool of mental noting, you know, where we put a mental label on experience in the service of mindfulness. Upandita, Saida Upandita, who was a disciple of Mahasi Sayadaw, he very much emphasized the effort side. He was a warrior. You know, it was like, kill the defilements. And that was the whole metaphor. It's it's like Buddha in warrior mode. So for many years we were studying with Saita Upandita and in some slightly watered down way emphasizing that side of things. There are many other traditions and lineages in Burma. There are over 50 ways of doing Vipassana practice. They're all the cultivation of mindfulness, but from different styles. In these last couple of years, we have been more emphasizing uh, relaxing, you know, not, not the strong effort uh, in that very forceful way. Right? It's effort in a relaxed way, you know, in a continuous way. But actually, this is how Mahasi Saida also taught. You know, when he would give instructions, the instructions would be, it wasn't in the progressive way that we did here. You know, we start with the breath, and then a day or two later go to sensations and then slowly build. At the monasteries, at his monasteries, you would sit, and basically the instruction would be, sit and notice what's happening. You know, and he did use, he did emphasize the tool of noting, but it was that very open kind of practice. Uh, using the breath as a primary object, but being open to whatever arose. So it's really not a question of, uh, the way I see it is Mahasi tradition or some other tradition. It's just emphasizing at different times, you know whether we're whether we're really emphasizing the effort factor in a strong way, emphasizing the relaxing back more, using the mental noting when it's a tool. It's not working particularly, or you don't find it helpful. And there's no need to do it. Um, so I just wouldn't make too much of a distinction here. Okay. There are many more questions and. Some of them were great, but it's 8.30, and I wanted to end just with this last question. If you could impart one message to our minds before we leave, (laughs) what would it be? Well, at first I was kind of wondering, well, what would it be? And then the light bulb went off. And I just thought of the Buddha's last words. Because what could be a more powerful message? And here's the Buddha, enlightened at 35, for 45 years wandering northern India teaching you know, all of these beings, monks and nuns and lay people. 
And finally he comes to the end of his life. He's lying, as so is said, between you know these two trees who, as the legend goes, are flowering out of season. And what does he say? His very last words. These these words are of import. I mean, you can imagine he's the Buddha, the awakened one, you know, speaking to so many of his disciples. He said, "Subject to decay are all conditioned things. All conditioned things are impermanent. All conditioned things are changing." Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Work out your awakening, your enlightenment, with diligence. It's really profound. You know, because the Buddha is pointing to the essential nature of all phenomena. We get so caught up in the story of our lives, and so caught up in our desires, in our aversions, and and the Buddha is just saying all of it, all of it, is subject to decay. You know, everything we're so involved in, everything we think is so important in our lives, it's all subject to change. So what is important? You know, work out your awakening. With diligence, it takes diligence in the midst of this world of change. It takes that quality, that word has been translated as diligence or heedfulness or care. And so that really is the message for all of us. And we need to hear it again and again, because it's not a message we get out in the world very much. I'm sure you've noticed on many advertisements on the internet or in magazines or newspapers, just little headlines for some enticement or other. It'll say, increase your desire. (laughs) No, that's a good idea. I mean, the whole, our whole society is about that. It's that understanding that increasing your desire is something to aim for. That's why the Buddha's message is so precious. You know, he's with such clarity. He saw the nature of this life, the nature of the mind and body. And it's not esoteric. I mean, I'm sure you have seen over these weeks and months all conditioned things are subject to change. Everything that we've experienced arises and passes. Practice with heedfulness, whether it's in the context of a retreat or the context of our lives. So let's sit for just a couple of moments. Relaxed, easeful, attentive.
Thank you for all your questions. There were many more good ones. This could have been several hours. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.